Tonight I want to speak about one of the most important teachings of the Buddha. And it is a key to understanding the liberation that the Buddha's teachings point to. And as such, this particular teaching is unique to the Buddha's understanding of the truth. And this is the teaching on what are traditionally called the five aggregates, or the fact that this body and mind does not constitute a unique, freestanding, individual entity. And so the talk is really about insight into the anatta characteristic, or insight into the characteristic of selflessness. Now what this means in plain English is that neither the body nor the mind, individually or collectively, nor any of their functions, constitute an entity that we can call me, or mine, or who I am. The corollary to that is that this being that we conventionally call me, or you, man, woman, human, this being is created out of conditions, physical conditions, mental conditions, environmental conditions. And it is only due to the conjunction of conditions that this being exists at all. And that there is no inherent self or entity within this fluxing nature of mind and body. This understanding of who we are, or maybe I should say who we aren't, is a radical understanding. It is so opposed to our ordinary perceptions, our conditioned perceptions, that it is difficult, if not impossible, to believe rationally, and extremely subtle to perceive experientially. And yet, in our practice here, I would like to show tonight that we have begun to see for ourselves that this is true, that there really is no entity within this mind-body process 
to whom all of our experience are happening, but rather we individually are nothing more than the fluxing of conditions that are outside of our control. The belief that we have of an entity, a self, an ego, a person, a me, within this process is a very deep-rooted, deeply-seated, deeply-conditioned belief. And it has led us to an identification with our body, an identification with our thoughts, identification with our mind, in a way that has served to create an identity. But this identification with our body, with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our memories, with our experiences, with our personal history, is nothing more than another form of attachment. And the strength of our identity is nothing more than the strength of our attachment. The Buddha said that the wrong view of personality belief or the wrong view of ego belief or the wrong view of self has everywhere and at all times most misled and confused beings. It is this belief which has most deluded us throughout our unending wanderings through samsara, through cyclic existence. How does this wrong view work? You might notice out in the garden there is a scarecrow, uh, a, a straw-shaped form similar to a human with human clothes on it that is designed to keep the crows away or keep the birds away. And when the bird sees that shape and color, it thinks there's a human in the garden, or it thinks, I don't know if it thinks or not, but anyway, <laughs> it, <laughs> it senses there's a human in the garden and they don't come near. They mistake that scarecrow for a human. Likewise, when we look at this body, or we look at the body of another, and their mind, and we hear their personal history, and we hear their thoughts and beliefs and feelings and, and what, whatever, we think that is a person. We mistake that accumulation of experience as someone, something, some person, when in fact it's just 
an aggregation of experience, conditioned by the weather, the past, the future. It's like a tapestry. We were recently in New York. We went to the Met. We saw some beautiful tapestries. From a distance, you stand back and you look across the room, and there is this fantastically beautiful scene of uh, King Arthur and the Knights at the Round Table searching for the Holy Grail. It's beautiful, exquisite, extravagant. And then you get closer to it, and you see just how many threads there are making up this a tapestry. And then when you get really close, you see that each of those threads is made up of a whole bunch of little filaments. By the time you're looking at all these filaments, you've completely lost the picture, and you don't know what you're looking at, conceptually. You forget. You, 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 you lose perspective on King Arthur and the Knights at the Round Table. You lose perspective on there being a tapestry at all. And all you are aware of is these filaments of color. When we look at the tapestry of our life, it looks like there's someone here to whom life is happening or who is living life. And yet when we get really close and we look with a very refined and steady attention, what do we see? Colored filaments held together in some pattern of identification and attachment that make up this thing called me. And we have begun to see that. In our ordinary reality, in our consensual ordinary reality, it is very important it is essential that we have a very clear and well-defined sense of self. We need to know who we are to get around and to get through this world skillfully. I need to know who I am as opposed to who you are. I need to know my boundaries, my responsibilities, my possessions, my own personal history, my thoughts, my beliefs, my possessions. I, I need that. You need yours. In order to uh, have a relative sense of self that can kind of uh, negotiate life with all these other relative sense of self. But it is helpful to look at what this relative sense of self, how, how this relative sense of ourself is created. How our identification with it inevitably leads to suffering and unhappiness. If it didn't lead to unhappiness and suffering, fine, go ahead and believe it. But it does lead to suffering and unhappiness. And so if we can see how it is created and begin to take apart this solid sense of self, which 
suffers. In the process, we relieve ourselves of suffering and we discover that <coughs> place of freedom where we are not stuck or fixed or locked into any restricted, narrow sense of self, but rather we can open to the full range of experience. The Buddha talked about five elements of this mind-body process that we identify with as me or mine or who I am. And the first of these is the body. Quite obviously, this is my body, we think, we believe. The other four elements are all mental. They are consciousness or the activity of thought. You know, we believe our thoughts. The thoughts I have are mine. We believe that. That's one mistaken understanding. The second is feeling. The feeling of pleasant and unpleasant. We believe it is me. I feel pleasant. I feel unpleasant. When in fact, feeling of pleasant or unpleasant is merely a f an impersonal functioning of the mind. The third mental element is perception, that which recognizes as familiar. In its manifest form, it is our memory. We have memories of what this mind-body has gone through, and we say, that is my personal history. It's not. That functioning of memory is another impersonal experience of the mind, attribute of the mind. It's not ours. It's not me. It's not mine. And the fourth is, the fourth mental element is what are called sankharas. And those are other qualities and experiences of the mind, um, the five hindrances, uh, the, the four Brahma-viharas, the seven factors of enlightenment, all of these other qualities of mind that we believe is me, or mine, at least mine. So I want to show, or I'd like to show, how with each of these five elements, we take them to be real, we take them to be me or mine, we get identified with them, they create suffering, and I want to show how our practice here is telling us something to the contrary. So the first experience I want to speak about is the body. Now obviously there is some continuity to the body from the time this being is born through its present age to the time it dies. There's, there's a continuity and we can all recognize that. And the body goes through its changes, but there remains a recognizable pattern. 
Now this pattern has its underpinnings in our particular genetic code. But this pattern that the body exhibits also has deep roots in the mind. How the mind is affects how the body is. The mind and body have a, have a two-way conversation going on all the time. And it's quite clear and it's quite obvious that most of us are very identified with our body. We get up in the morning, we take a look in the mirror, and we say, yep, that's me. <laughs> Still me. Nobody else there. And the attachment, the recognition is pretty obvious, but the attachment comes when we stand in front of the mirror and adjust our hair just so hmm, to fit that image of ourself that we want to convey to others. And we can spend a lot of time adjusting that image in the mirror. Why? Because we think it's me. And I want to present myself to the world and to others a certain way. And so we fix our hair and we, we, we doctor ourselves up and we feel uh, ashamed or embarrassed or uh, we feel like hiding if there's a pimple, you know, right there where everybody's going to see it, right? Don't we feel really identified? That pimple, it, it, it destroys the image of me that I want to present to people. And we all have, we all have, that, that reveals how attached we are to our appearance. We think it's me. It's not me. But until we learn to let go, of course, it causes suffering because inevitably this body grows old, gets sick, and dies. And none of us want to be that body growing old, getting sick, and dying. And so as we reach our age, we start looking for those little adjustments that we can make that keep us uh, appearing like we want to appear. You know, we get a little body sculpting done and a little coloring done and a little shaping done and a little, you know, whatever, whatever we do, we get ourselves uh, uh, made in the shape that we can be happily identified with. But, as we all know, gravity takes over. <laughs> found this lovely poem that expresses the anguish of identification with the body exquisitely. It's called, Cosmetics Do No Good. Cosmetics do no good. No shadow, rouge, mascara, lipstick, nothing helps. First I might say, this is written by a woman about her particular process. Men do the same thing. Cosmetics do no good. No shadow, rouge, mascara, lipstick, nothing helps. However artfully I comb my hair, embellishing my throat and wrists with jewels, it is no use. There is no semblance of the beautiful young girl I was and long for still. 
my loveliness is past. And no one could be more aware than I am that coquettishness at this age only renders me ridiculous. I know it. Nonetheless, I primp myself before the glass like an infatuated schoolgirl, fussing over every detail, practicing whatever subtlety may please him. I cannot help myself. The god of passion has his will of me, and I am tossed about between humiliation and desire, rectitude and lust, disintegration and renewal, ruin and salvation. We all go through a semblance of that each morning in front of the mirror, creating ourselves in an image that we hope others will approve, that we can feel comfortably identified with, attached to. We come on a retreat like this, and what do we discover about the body? First of all, when you close your eyes and you sit down and you pay attention, the appearance of the body is far from our direct experience. And what we discover instead is that this body is just this mass of aches and pains and sensations and bubbles and gurgles and throbs and pulses and vibrating and tingling and, you know. Most of which we would just as soon not be identified with and not attached to. <laughs> I don't know who's got the got that going on with them, but it's not me, right? So when we really look and pay attention, we just as soon not be identified with this body. When we really get in touch with how the body is, we're all too happy to let it go. But you might ask yourself, these eyes, part of the body, part of me, they're my eyes. Can you make them work? Can you make them not work? Can you make your ears not work? No. We know that the senses operate free of our will and wish. They, they just do their work. It's just a very mechanical process that the eyes work, the ears work, the tongue works, the body works. It's, it's on automatic pilot most of the time. As we pay attention and we see this happening, we begin to let go of this belief that I am the body, I'm in control of the body, this is my body, I can do with it what I want. And we realize we can't. It's got its own agenda, it's off there doing its own thing, we're just along for the ride. Or we notice uh, uh, times in, in sitting where um, the feeling we have of the body, the direct experience of the body, is so contrary to our belief about the body. And, and, and sometimes we find ourselves feeling extraordinarily light, like we're levitating. Or we feel extraordinarily heavy, like we weigh ton. Or expansively large, or unbelievably shrunken and small to the size of a, a small atom. 
And sometimes that's what the body feels like. It goes through these uh, unbelievable contortions and distortions. And all of it has the purpose, or serves the purpose of slowly loosening our grip on, our attachment to, our identification with, this is me. I'm in control of this thing here. And we realize, slowly, over time, that the body has its own agenda, it's doing its own thing, and it really isn't me. And it certainly isn't mine. It's a very slow and gradual realization that we come to. But it isn't a matter of belief. It's a matter of direct realization that this is the way it is. We really are not the body. There was one time in my practice in Burma where I was feeling particularly light, agile in the mind, and the body was very light. The body felt transparent. It felt uh, invisible. When I would sit, there was, there was hardly any sensations except it just felt like I was evaporating, just, uh, very, just thinner than mist. So I went to my teacher and I was telling him what my experience was and, and uh, describing it. And there were many times when I would be walking from one building to another, walking to meals, when I was so light, I couldn't feel my clothes on me, my robes on me, and I thought I was naked. And I would have to look to see, am I dressed? You know, and kind of touch myself to make sure I'm here. So I was telling my teacher what was going on, and um, he said, he listened carefully, and he said, now you know what it's like when you just come out of your mother's womb, and you're not yet identified with your body. We have learned to be identified and attached to this body. The practice that we undertake here is a gradual unlearning of that identification, a letting go, a loosening of that attachment and identification, and letting it go so that we can truly be free of whatever limitation this body imposes on us. So that's the first, and, and maybe the grossest, and maybe one of the most tenacious false beliefs that we have about ourself, our body. The second experience I want to speak about that seems to refer to someone inside of this process is really a construction of our thoughts. And our thoughts serve to create a sense of who we are. When I was born, my mother and father called me Steve to distinguish me from my brother Pete. And when they would touch me or talk to me or hold me or cuddle or coo or sing or whatever they do, they say, oh, Steve, you're such a nice little boy. Yes, yes, your name is Steve. 
You got that? Yes, yes. Now, Steve do this, Steve don't do that. Your name is Steve, Steve. And uh, over the course of years, my brother began to believe that I, that I was Steve. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the government believed I was Steve. They gave me some, some numbers. And the bank, too, gave me some numbers. And, and suddenly, I've got this whole, this whole uh, confirmation that I'm Steve. And I got the papers and the pictures and, and the personal history to prove it. Throughout this course, or throughout this time of growing up, I have been a son to my parents, a brother to my brother, uh, you know, now an uncle to some nie nieces, and uh, a student to many teachers, a teacher to some. Uh, I have, have been through many roles and many relationships. And the, the tapestry that these roles and relationships weave is me. It's the tapestry of Steve. And much of my identification of who I am is a litany of my experiences, my roles, my relationship. Sometimes, depending on the strength of my identification with my roles and relationships, it serves me well. And we need, as I said before, in the relative world of getting along with each other and around with each other, we need to understand who we are in relationship to others. But inevitably, there comes the time when our identification with our role causes us suffering. Several years ago, I went to Burma to undertake more uh, practice like this. I went to a monastery and I ordained as a, as a Buddhist monk. Shaved my head, started to wear robes, give up the use of money, and lived by the code of rules that monks live by, 227 rules, which control or guide every aspect of your life, everything. One of the rules is that monks don't eat afternoon. After 12 o'clock, they don't eat anymore. They just eat in the morning. And there's some reasons for that, and that's just the way that it is now for monks. And there are, there are many other rules. But the story I'm telling refers to that one. Living in the monastery, abiding by that rule, identifying myself as a monk, no problem. The monastery was... Uh, the whole structure and schedule of the monastery is designed to support monks, and so they made sure that you got your meals before noon. When I came back to the States, uh, after five years in Burma, I came back to the States, went and stayed at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, uh, hadn't seen my family for uh, five, five and a half years, and so my mother and brothers and sisters decided that uh, they would have a family reunion at Thanksgiving and invite me. So I said, great, I'll, I'll come. And on Thanksgiving Day, I was driven up to my brother's house and walked in. And of course, you know how it is at Thanksgiving. There's food all over the place. And uh, they promptly informed me that, that the meal would be served at 3 o'clock. 
in the afternoon. And, uh, well, I was still a monk. And monks don't eat after noon. Now, what was I going to do? Hang on to my identification as a monk, refuse to eat, and create a lot of, at least, confusion, and probably a lot of pain in the part of my other family members because, you know, Thanksgiving is a meal of, it's a day of sharing and eating and celebrating and giving thanks, and a large part of it is eating. And if you're there celebrating Thanksgiving and you don't eat, it's, it creates some tension and some, okay. So was I going to stay identified as a monk, keep my rules and not eat, or was I going to let go of my identification because it wasn't going to hurt anyone for me to let go of that identification for that period of time and participate in the Thanksgiving meal. Now you see where the suffering comes in? To the extent that I was identified with being a monk, I suffered. To the extent that I could let go of being a monk, free, just participate in the events of life quite un, uh, unencumbered by any identification. We all have roles and relationships that we're identified with. Whether it's being a mother, or being a teacher, or being a partner, when that role or that relationship is not confirmed by others, we suffer. When your child challenges you and you have to resort to the, you do it because I'm your mother and I'm telling you. That's, that's suffering. Causes suffering to them, causes suffering to you because there's that identification. Or when students don't confirm your status as a teacher, but challenge you or disrespect you in some way. How does that feel? It hurts. What hurts? They aren't honoring our role or our position or our place. But if we can let go of that role, we can let go of that identification, it's not a problem. And we all have innumerable roles, innumerable relationships, and they're all created out of thought. What really makes Kamala and I sitting up here teachers? Do we look any different? Do we act any different? Do we, is, what makes it? We're all thinking that that's the way it is. You're all students, the two of us are teachers. We all agree to that, and that's a thought. That's all, to the extent that we can let go of that identification, our attachment to it, we don't suffer when somebody challenges us. What do you know? How, what level of insight do you have? How free are you? Identification with our body, identification with our the activity of our mind, the roles and relationship. A third experience that we often get identified with as who I am 
me, mine, is our memory. The third experience I want to talk about that serves to uh, create or condition a sense of me or mine is the selectivity of our memory. Now, I am continually amazed at how precise and exquisite our memory can be in recalling some incident 20, 30 years ago, where somebody said something to us, and we, are, we have hung on to it ever since. And yet, we can't remember what we had for lunch yesterday. That is how fickle and flimsy memory really is. When we are asked by a stranger, or when we meet someone new, and we wish to give them a, uh, an impression of us, we usually list a long list of memories that we have. Oh, I was born here, there, raised, did this, went to the school, learned, learned this, got this degree, and worked here and there, and whatnot. And it's all memory that we are conveying to another person in order to create an impression, to, to let them in on who we are, to tell them who we are, to expose our identity to them. Now, normally, we can maintain a pretty solid sense of ourselves by selecting the memories that we present. And if we are careful, we don't let the skeleton out of the closet. And we just present the memories that we have that serve to reinforce this sense of ourself, the one that we like, the one that we hope other people will believe. And that's the one that we, we those are the memories that we talk about. And so through that uh, repetition and that identification with these particular memories, we create a pretty cohesive and enduring sense of who we are. However, occasionally memories emerge which don't fit our image. Things that we've done, things that we've said, <coughs> things that we felt that are uh, embarrassing, uh, shameful, hurtful, uh, confused, uh, that somehow just and, and when they emerge into our consciousness, we, 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 we lose sense of ourselves. We, we get confused. We get a little bit, we, we suffer. We, we, we feel pained that this memory of something I did is now haunting me, tormenting me. And because we are identified with certain memories as who I am, and trying to keep out other memories of experiences we've had, we get caught, we, we, we suffer, we, we, we feel hurt, we feel uh, afraid, we feel challenged, actually. 
in the process of practice as we have undertaken here, it is, I would have to say, universally experienced that we all go through a personal history review. We, we somehow, even though we're trying to be in the present moment, our past just comes, just comes up. And inevitably, the skeletons come out of the closet in time. And the first time they appear in the mind, we may close the door really quick because it doesn't fit our image of ourselves. And so we struggle. We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We feel afraid. And we suffer because these memories emerge, whatever, whatever memories. And the first time we see it, the reaction is intense. And the, the reaction uh, may be stronger, or the feeling that comes with those memories may be stronger than we felt at the time of the actual experience. And in fact, often, with the clarity of mind and the, 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 the power of mindfulness that gets developed on retreat, we do feel things deeply for the first time having buried certain painful memories long ago. But what we do in the practice is we, we uncover these memories, we feel them deeply, and we learn a new way of relating to them. We learn a new way of being with the pain that is exposed. But it takes time. It takes many many confrontations with that memory. It takes deep abiding with that feeling and, and encouraging ourselves to allow ourselves to feel what we have lived. And we may uncover memories of this lifetime. We may uncover memories of previous lifetimes, if you believe in that. Nevertheless, there is work to be done in opening to the full range of remembering who and what we are. In the process, that limited sense of ourself that we have somehow managed to present to others is destroyed. And we see that we are not limited to who we think and remember ourselves to be that sense of self that is created by our memories is not real. It's a false and limited sense of self. And what we see is there really is no defined, contained, limited self to whom all of these experiences have happened. But rather, the being that has uh, acknowledged or lived through or been exposed to these experiences is ever-changing, moment by moment. Even as we recall and reintegrate the memories that we have forgotten. In this, we become able to live our full life being free of the fear of painful memories, 
being fear of any limited view of who we are. Identification with the body, identification with our roles and relationships created out of thought, identification with our memory. A fourth element of the mind, or a third element of the mind, a fourth experience that conditions a belief in a freestanding entity here is the belief in the person who's making all these decisions about my life, the one who is in control of my life. The choices we make to think, to speak, to act, lead us to believe that there is a me in here making those choices, making those decisions, choosing to behave or act and speak in a certain way. Now, on a relative level, it's true. We each individually made the decision to come here. But once we're here, we look at that process a little more closely, a little more intimately. It doesn't take but a few hours of trying to follow the breath, be with our primary object, when we realize that just because we make a decision to pay attention doesn't mean a thing to the mind. It could care less. Making the choice to be mindful is really no choice at all. We either are or aren't, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with our decision. And so we begin to feel challenged in our self-efficacy. Who is it that's doing this? If it's not me, who's making the choices? Who's deciding what to do here? I'm sure you've all engaged in this debate. You're sitting, 20 minutes goes by, half hour goes by, and the body begins to feel painful. And the debate starts. Should I move or should I sit still? And The debate goes something like this. Well, I want to sit still. It's good meditation. But fear comes into the mind and says, but gee, if I sit with this pain, I might never walk again. (laughs) And compassion comes into the mind and says, be nice to yourself. Be kind. Hey, you know, may you be free of suffering. Why don't you move? And then determination comes in and says, no, I'm here, I'm going to endure this, I'm going to strengthen my mind and deepen my concentration, I'm going to sit still, I'm not going to move. And doubt comes in and says, oh yeah? (laughs) 
boredom arises in the mind and says, I've already seen this pain before. Why should I have to watch it again? <laughs> Desire enters the mind and says, seek relief. <laughs> Take movement. Aversion enters the mind and says, I hate this pain. <laughs> right? I mean, the, and this conversation is going on in the mind. You know, should I, shouldn't I, flavored by all these different mental states, right? We didn't invite these mental states to come, but they just come by themselves. And at some point, we either move or we don't. Who made the decision? Did desire make the decision? Did fear make the decision? Did determination make the decision? Did patience make the decision? Who made the decision? Did you make the decision? Which one of those mental states are you? It's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? To look at it that way, we didn't make a decision. Conditions unfolding through time made the decision. Habit makes the decision. If our habit is to move with the slightest discomfort, we moved. If we are developing and strengthening another habit of steadiness of mind, focus of mind, deep and clear seeing of the nature of pain, we didn't move. But it's a habit. A habit that's either conditioned by aversion, desire, confusion, or it's conditioned by clarity, understanding, um, and seeing things as they truly are. We can't claim that as me, nor mine, nor who I am, when we see so clearly that it is completely out of our control. Do you see what I'm pointing at? Do you see how when you look at the tapestry, at the individual threads, the moments of experience that make up this sense of self, what do we actually see? We see this impersonal unfolding of cause and effect creating this illusion that there is a me making this decision, when in fact aversion conditioned the decision or desire conditioned the decision, the choice to move. Now, today in the, in the retreat, we offered the instruction to pay attention to your intentions the moment you are about to do something. You're about to open your eyes. You're about to scratch an itch. You're about to adjust your, your aching body. And why do we say pay attention to that moment, that impulse in that mind when you're about to, or when you're intending to, just intending to do something, so that you can begin to see this very truth that you, who you think you are, is not, make, not in control but rather that conditions unfolding are making the choices that we carelessly believe we're making. So as you pay attention to this moment, this impulse, you're sitting, pain arises, and you feel this impulse to move, then you get a chance to look at, why move? Who's moving? What's causing me to move? Is it me wanting to move? No. I'm wanting to sit still. 
And yet this impulse keeps arising to move, to move, adjust, fix, get some relief, to, to, you know. And at some point we move. Depending on the clarity of our, the power and the clarity of our attention and mindfulness, we will see this clearly and give up, let go of this sense of being in control. If we're not so clear, if we're just kind of uh, seeking comfort and relief, oh, we'll move real quick and we'll be comfortable and we'll miss this truth. We won't see the fine threads of this tapestry. We're getting close, but not yet seeing these fine, fine threads of experience that create this illusion, this tapestry of a me. The last experience, the fifth experience that we all have, which serves to create an impression that there is a me, uh, an entity, an enduring person, a being in this process, is the experience of pleasant and unpleasant experiences that give rise to liking and disliking life. We can acknowledge, if asked, what we like and what we don't like. I like chocolate. I don't like melons. Uh, I like brown rice. I don't like white rice. You know, I like chicken, but I don't like steak or whatever. You know, and we and we go down the list of of likes and dislikes that serve in large part to create a sense of who I am. We know I'm different than Kamala because she likes that and I like this. And we are all different from each other because we have these preferences for other people, activities, thoughts, beliefs, behaviors. And so we have created a distinct, unique entity or identity supported by our likes and dislikes. Now we think it is me who likes and dislikes, or me who feels the pleasant and unpleasant that conditions likes and dislikes. We come here and we sit down and we pay attention. And we see the mind feeling pleasant and unpleasant, giving rise to these automatic, deeply conditioned, reactive habits of liking and disliking. Is that me? No. Deeply conditioned habit. Do we have a choice to dislike pleasant experiences? Not much. Do we have a choice to like unpleasant experiences? Not without mindfulness. And yet, as we steady our mind, really pay close attention to pleasant and unpleasant, we can see how free we can become of our habitual reaction. 
we, at the end of a retreat, we have finally learned how to sit still with a little bit of pain. We may not like it, but we're not so averse to it as on day one. And if we kept at it long enough, we would decondition those habitual reactions of liking and disliking that have led us to so much suffering. Because we know when you dislike the pain in your body, you suffer. When you can open to it, be with it, not get caught in that habitual reaction, we don't suffer. It's intense, and it may be unpleasant, but we don't suffer. And we begin to see that freedom from suffering, freedom from dukkha, is to not be caught in habitual reactivity. We need to decondition those reactions. That's what we learn. So it's not me who likes and dislikes. It's pain or it's unpleasantness that dislikes and it's pleasantness that likes. It's a little subtle, but what we are doing here in this practice is learning how to live with these truths, how to see for ourselves. And we've all had that experience. We've all had times of being able to sit with pain in the body and not feel miserable. It's important to begin to recognize pleasant is pleasant, liking is liking, and to uncouple that conditioned link between pleasantness and liking, and to uncouple the link between unpleasantness and disliking, and to not get identified with the liking and disliking. That's where we suffer. If we can open to the pleasantness and the unpleasantness just as they are, no suffering. It's when we're identified with liking the pleasant and disliking the unpleasant that we suffer. So these experiences I've been talking about, these are referred to in the Buddha's teachings as the five aggregates, the five experiences which serve as a source or a vehicle for our identification with a sense of self, who we think we are, our memories, our body, our thoughts, our feelings, our preferences, our decisions, our choices. These are what we really identify with deeply as who I am. But we see in our own practice how neither the body nor the mind is me, nor mine, nor who I am. We are so much more, not limited by any or all of these. In this knowledge, in the clarity of this insight, 
this insightful knowledge into how we are not our body nor our mind. We open to this vast, expansive freedom to be all that we're able to be. It is a gradual lessening of identification with these experiences. It's not a dramatic, it's not a single dramatic incident experience. Rather, it's a gradual lessening of our identification with the body, identification with the mind or functioning of the mind, and an opening, a gradual opening into the spaciousness of non-identification or letting go. An old Chinese monk that I practiced with in Burma and Malaysia wrote a poem about the experience of being somebody and identifying as being someone and the insight into anatta. And he put it like this, everybody wants to be somebody, nobody wants to be nobody. If there was ever a somebody who was really a nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) Everybody wants to be somebody, identification with something. Nobody wants to be nobody, non-identification. If there was ever a somebody who was really a nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.